Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. We don't have any fresh reviews, so please take some time to drop one into our Apple podcast feed. They truly make my day. Today, I have the absolute joy of talking to the one and only Ken Ramirez from the Karen Pryor Clicker Training Academy about snake avoidance training. Ken Ramirez has over 40 years of experience in professional animal training with more species than I can count. For the last few years, he's been working on a project to teach positive reinforcement snake avoidance training. I'm super duper excited to get to this interview, but before we get into it, we're going to dive into our science highlight. Today, um, we're reading the paper titled Field Quantifications of Probability of Detection and Search Patterns to Form Protocols for the Use of Detector Dogs for Eradication Assessments, which was written by Benjamin Hoffman, Craig Faulkner, Laura Brington, and Fade Lawton, and published in July 2022 in Ecology and Evolution. So this paper focused on the use of detection dogs to locate yellow crazy ant populations for eradication. The goal was to investigate the probability of detection for the ants relative to a transect search line, and then assess how dog search patterns in relation to transect spacing affected site-level probability of detection. They also compared these metrics between two dogs. Both dogs were used for experienced koala detection Springer Spaniels named Jet and Frankie. So the dogs were working in northeast Arnhem land in Australia, which is vegetation that they describe as savanna woodland dominated by eucalyptus and understory brush. So as far as I can tell, the project didn't focus on training the dogs to discriminate between yellow crazy ants and other ants, but because most of the training did take place out in the environment, there were other ants around, um, although we will talk about um, it seems like the dogs were particularly jet was cued into the scent of the containers as well. Um, so definitely more of a probability of detection search coverage paper than necessarily discrimination or like um, operational level stuff. So anyway, for probability of detection, the experimenters used roadsides along areas with relatively low underbrush that were at least 500 meters from the nearest known yellow crazy ant populations. They categorized each test as ideal or non-ideal wind conditions based on the wind speed, swirling, and gusting. 
The work was conducted in the morning for dog comfort and to mimic when yellow crazy ants would be most active in an actual survey. So canisters, they use um, metal shaker, shaker canisters with about 50 ants were placed at least 30 meters apart along the transect at varying distances from the road. And to avoid tracking, the canisters were actually set from the opposite side of the road. So they had someone kind of walk on the, if you imagine two parallel roads, um, the canister was set from one road and then the dog searched from the other. So the dog couldn't track the person over to the canisters. Um, they were placed both upwind and downwind of the the road that the dog was going to search. And this, um, the probability of detection section was just working with jet. The handlers were not told where the canisters were or if the canister was hot or blank until jet alerted. Jet was then walked on a short lease to facilitate detection distance calculation, which makes sense for data analysis, but might not reflect real life searches. Um, so to quote, if jet was walking seemingly randomly, not following a scent, following the scent of the setter or pursuing the likes of a prior canister, he was ordered to return to the handler. Also, if he was indeed on the scent of a canister but lost the scent or could not find it, he was called to return. If Jet violated any of the rules listed above, the trial was voided, which I find interesting. I guess that makes sense statistically, but I don't really like the idea of eliminating um, trials where the dog uh, did dog things. That seems like you might be... Uh, Kind of inflating your numbers. Um, I, I didn't. I read that section multiple times and didn't quite understand why they did it that way. Um, now to quote the results. Jet was clearly able to detect ants both upwind and downwind, including 30 meters downwind in non-ideal conditions. Detectability was greatest at two meters with 86.1% detectability and declined slightly non-linearly with distances up to 20 meters, so down to 33%, 33.48% detectability but was plateaued by about 30 meters where he was finding 26.23% of the canisters. Detectability was consistently greater when the ants were upwind of the dog, irrespective of the wind conditions. The calculated relationship between dis distance and detectability was extremely strong with an R value of 0.998. Jet did not find the control canisters in 69.6% .6 of the opportunities, but did inspect them in 27% or 23.7% of the opportunities and found and signaled to the presence of ants um, in 6.7% of the opportunities, predominantly six of those nine times on the first day. So he was alerting to these blank canisters on the first day in particular. Next, the researchers quantified area coverage by creating a search area and then having the handlers walk transect spaced at 15, 20, or 25 meters at 45 degrees to the wind when possible. Basically, they wanted to see what percentage of the area that they were supposed to be searching the dogs came within two meters of at different transect spacing. So unsurprisingly, the dogs had best coverage at 15 meter spacing and then a little bit less well at 20 and 25 meter spacing. Further quoting the paper, quote, different working styles of the two dogs with Jet moving faster and covering more area than Frankie meant that in one hour, Jet could assess approximately 9.2 hectares with transect space 20 meters apart and approximately 6.8 hectares with transects 15 meters apart, whereas Frankie could only assess approximately 6.9 hectares with transects at 20 meters and 4.9 with transects at 15 meters, end quote. For limitations, obviously the probability of detection research was limited by just using the one dog with one target, but paired with other detection distance research papers outlined in my article in the IABC journal that I'll link in the show notes, we're getting a clear picture of, picture of what detection distance can look like. And with any research on probability of detection, this is just one environment, one target odor, and a couple dogs. Different terrain, vegetation, and weather can have dramatic effects on scent dispersal. 
To quote the discussion, regardless, to some extent, both dogs and handlers are able to adjust their search behavior if subject to problematic environmental conditions, such as by increasing search time and denser vegetation. Note that we did not alter search behavior among the environmental conditions assessed, at least not consciously. Ultimately, detection probability appears to be most strongly influenced by the distance than by environmental variables, at least at distances of less than around 10 meters, end quote. The canisters were never placed far enough to do away from the transects to determine at which uh, the point at which the dog's probability of detection reached zero. So Jet was almost certainly detecting the canisters as well as the ants, as evidenced by the fact that he alerted to them nine times over the course of that probability of detection experiment, so that first experiment. So now once we get into the results of the coverage section, quote, the efficacy trial was a very strict linear and time-controlled trial. It did not represent how a dog would detect ants under normal conditions, which is that it would be given, mistake, in which it is given free range to find and allow sense, typically zigzagging along and across the path by about 10 meters on either side with as much time as it needed to pinpoint a detection. Therefore, therefore, we believe our efficacy data can be considered to be absolute minimum values. Later on, they continue, quote, second is a consideration of how many times a dog has the opportunity to, dis- to assess any point location. The efficacy trial demonstrated what a dog is capable of for a single detection opportunity under strict linear behavioral, environmental, and time conditions. It is clear from a visual assessment of path maps that any ants at a point location have the potential to be detected on multiple dog paths at multiple distances, both upwind and downwind. Indeed, this opportunity would exist for any point location at least four times and probably many more in some instances. Because probability of detection is cumulative with each independent opportunity, this means that even relatively low probabilities of detection for individual opportunities can result in a high cumulative probability of detection. For example, four opportunities at only 60% probability result in a combined 97.44 probability of detection, end quote. So the authors finally closed with some suggestions, quote, saying, quote, maximum distance between transects should be 25 meters for larger sites of around 50 hectares and larger, and either 20 or 15 meters for smaller sites. These spacings are to be determined by the handler considering the time available, area to be worked, wind conditions, access conditions, etc., with the focus being to minimize area not accessed within 10 meters of the dog, end quote. So I hope that um, you all found this science highlight really interesting. I know I did. I think it's worth giving this article a full read. Um, some of it is not the best translated to an audio medium because so much of it is kind of about this probability of detection and some of the maps and figures in the article were uh, helpful for me as I was understanding it. So as always, you'll find that in our show notes. Now let's get to our interview with Ken. Canine Conservationist is thrilled to offer a self-study online class for those interested in joining the field of conservation dog professionals. This course includes 18 modules of video lecture, assigned reading, homework, and quizzes. We have lectures from 10 amazing guest instructors, including fostering motivation and joy through hide placement training with Laura Holder of Conservation Dogs Collective, safety training and assessments of dog teams with guests Fiona Jackson and Tracy Litton of Skyless Ecology, special considerations for insect and plant training samples with Arden Blumenthal of the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, and building networks and acquiring clients with Paul Bunker. Our alumni group is active and supportive, and we welcome students of all levels and backgrounds. The course is priced at $750 with generous financial aid and discounts available for Patreon members. Learn more and sign up at canineconservationist.org slash class. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. 
Well, thank you, Kayla. I appreciate the invitation. Always happy to be here with you. Yeah, well, every time you agree to come on, I feel like I've won the lottery. So um, <laughs> genuinely, thank you. Um, so I wanted to kind of start this out by kind of putting my cards on the table about snake avoidance um, and aversion and all of these sorts of things. Because I've been very torn on snake avoidance ever since, really, I got my first dog. Um, I grew up in northern Wisconsin, so it was never something I worried about. And then I got a dog when I lived in Colorado, where rattlesnakes are a concern. Right. Um, so on one hand, you know, every dog that I personally know who was bitten by a snake didn't really perceive the snake before the bite. Both dogs that I know personally were playing fetch and kind of ran right over the snake. Um, and I've always been skeptical that any sort of aversion or avoidance training would have worked in either of those cases or would have been relevant. Um, and then on the other hand, I've always been very reluctant to go kind of that aversion route, you know, most traditionally done with like a shock collar um, for a lot of reasons. You know, I know several dogs that have had pretty severe fallouts where they end up being scared of hoses or not wanting to go outside. And that's not yeah. something I'm willing to risk. But then, you know, even the dogs that do seem to come out, quote unquote, on K, I worry a little bit about the long term efficacy and the care and keeping of the snakes as well. And then the last thing, you know, now I've run out of hands, we're on hand three. Um, my last big hesitation is that I, I did attend one of Amy Craven's positive snake avoidance training seminars several years ago, and I liked a lot of the concepts, um, but I worried a little bit about making snakes relevant or a source of reinforcement for my dogs. And I really understood, I think I understand how this approach works in theory, um, but I worry that I'm not kind of a clean enough or clear enough trainer to do a good enough job, and then I would train my dog to seek out snakes for me. So yeah. as of right now, what I've done with my dogs is that if we do see a snake in the field, um, I tell them to leave it and might give a verbal correction if they investigate it in any sort of way. Um, I've used both um, Barley's emergency down around a couple different rattlesnakes, and then recently we ran into a, a pretty young um, little fertilance in El Salvador and used both of my dog's emergency downs while we then figured out how to move around it and get out of there. Um, but I don't really feel confident that not doing any sort of avoidance training is the best route either. Right. So that's where right. I'm at right now, and um, I'm really curious to hear, you know, where this started for you? Where did this journey come from? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, you, you pose a lot of very good questions and I understand where you're coming from. And my journey to training snake avoidance was never, it was never meant to, to be a focus of mine. It was never meant to lead to any type of studies. It was really uh, something that I did with some family and friends that was meant just to be an experimental task that ended up taking hold and become a bigger and bigger thing. I have now taught a positive reinforcement snake avoidance course for a couple years, but it probably is helpful if I go all the way back to when I was 11 years old, when I myself was bitten by a rattlesnake and was hospitalized for more than six weeks because oh of the fact that I was in the desert at my grandparents' ranch, got bitten foolishly ran all the way back to the ranch house 
where I we were 30-some minutes away from the hospital, and then I was thrown into the pickup truck and rushed to the hospital. By the time I got there, my leg was swollen, my, my I was unconscious, and I was in pretty bad shape. And the doctor suggests that maybe the only real reason that I survived it was because the snake probably did not inject a large quantity of venom, usually when the the thing that they strike out is so large that uh, uh, they don't think that they're going to be able to eat it. They just want to scare it away, and they don't necessarily inject a lot of, of venom. And although the damage to my foot and my leg and everything else was so bad that I that it, it it certainly seemed like it was a lot but but fortunately I came out of it unscathed other than mentally a little bit as um, I started working in zoological environments and was asked to work with snakes I didn't realize the fear that had developed in me from that experience um, and Gosh, so I can imagine <laughs> absolutely yeah and then of, of course. course my my uncle, uh, in New Mexico, uh, has always had a fairly large number of cattle dogs. And, um, and for a very long time, he never bothered doing anything about snakes. He just thought the likelihood of coming across a snake was pretty slim. Uh, and usually the dogs, when they're working, are herding cattle. And when there is a herd of cattle moving through an area, most of the time snakes are going to just disappear and get out of the way. And so the likelihood of coming into contact them with them was fairly slim. But he did end up having uh, a dog that was killed by a rattlesnake, and he had another dog that was bitten and, 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 and had some pretty bad experience with it. And so from there, he proceeded to to go the normal route. He didn't consult with me. I wasn't. I mean, first of all, I, I, I. When I early in my life, when I lived on the ranch, I wasn't a dog trainer, and I didn't think that I wasn't assuming I would ever become one. By the time I did become a dog trainer, um, you know, oftentimes you, you separate family from work, and I never tried to impose my thoughts and feelings about herding dog training on my uncle. He had dogs that did their job well, and I never bothered to really understand what he did or understand why he did it the way he did. But when he decided to train his dogs to avoid rattlesnakes, uh, he went the traditional shock collar route. And that was where I really while theoretically I was opposed to the idea of putting a shot collar on a dog, what really scared me was seeing the results of the, the shot collar training. And he and several ranchers in the area at that time, there was, there was a fairly good number of them, several of them who, who did uh, snake avoidance uh, training with shot collars and some who just didn't do anything. But of the people who were using snake avoidance, there was always in every group two or three dogs that seemed to be resilient. They learned to avoid snakes and the horrors or the bad side effects of using the shot collar were not evident. But there were also dogs, and particularly in my uncle's case, he had a dog who was 
who learned to be afraid to go outside, who became afraid to go herd cattle, who became afraid to do anything. And as I started investigating it, I found out from him that many of his fellow ranchers had had similar issues. They'd had one dog that did well with the snake avoidance training using a shot collar, and they had two dogs that had terrible fallout that didn't that didn't want to go out and 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 i think that uh and so it was actually my my uncle who knowing what i did and knowing that i was a trainer um asked me at some point we were having a conversation and he wanted to know whether i thought there was a possibility of a way to train snake avoidance using positive reinforcement. And again, because I was not trying to do a research project, I was not trying to uh, write a paper, I was just trying to help my uncle, uh, I didn't really know of any positive reinforcement uh, snake avoidance trainers back in the day. There may have been some, but I just wasn't aware of them. Um, I just developed in my own little vacuum, my own process for, for trying something out and uh, ended up working with my uncle and working with a couple of other ranchers in the area. Um, and we, we really did five I did my first real trial with five different dogs and the um, three were males, two were females and people always are interested in the breed mixes. And I had a pit bull mix, a Labrador retriever, two blue healers and one rat terrier. So there was a, quite a variety of, of breeds there. We were successful with all five of them using uh, the protocol that we, that I was using and the protocol that we used, we did not use, uh, visual or odor cues. We just simply taught the dogs at the sound of rattle. What we had mm. discovered is that, and I certainly, it certainly happened to me. I heard the rattle and that's what caused me actually to jump and that caused the, dog, the snake to bite me. But either way, we taught all our dogs at that point I didn't know anything about odor training and I didn't really understand. I didn't really want to do visual training. We trained the dogs. We trained the dogs a very, very reliable recall and uh, paired it with the rattle sound so that mm -hmm. rattle would sound, sound the recall, new cue, old cue. The dogs learned very quickly the sound of rattlesnake caused them to turn away from the, the rattle sound and run away and then back to the truck, back to the ranch, back to the pickup, depending on where we were working, the animals learned to quickly turn and run away. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was how my, that was my entree into snake avoidance training was working with five dogs from three different owners who were, who'd had bad experience with shot collars and wanted to see if it would work or not. Um, the dogs did great. We maintained it for, uh, we continued to work hard on making it reliable over a period of a couple of years. And, um, and then there were number of times when they would encounter rattlesnakes and the dogs would come running back to the, to the, the owners, uh, very reliably. None of those dogs ever ended up getting bitten by a snake. There were many, many instances of successful, showing that it successfully worked, that they mm -hmm. recalled off of it. Um, 
And that was the end of my first phase of snake avoidance training. I've gotten into several other phases since that time, but that was that was my introduction to it without having had any other outside influences at all other than my mm -hmm. own experience as a positive reinforcement trainer. Interestingly enough, I'm happy to tell you about all of the different phases if you're interested, but interestingly enough, in the years since, and I have now been doing this protocol for well over 10 years, the protocol hasn't changed much other than I still use recall as my primary go-to behavior, uh, and I have only added uh, odor and visual cues to mm -hmm. the ways that dogs might detect the snakes and have certainly expanded the types of snakes that I have, that we have worked on yeah. training this with. And so uh, those are the things that have changed. And I've, I've also been able to have the good fortune to watch and listen to other positive reinforcement snake avoidance trainers. There's a lot of similarities in some places that we perhaps differ, but for the most part, it's usually, what do you want the dog to do instead of biting, chasing, and barking at the snake? Let's get that as a reliable, really, really reliable behavior, and then let's figure out how we're going to train it and how we're going to maintain it. Yeah. No, that that's, makes perfect sense. And yeah, I'm excited to go through some of the others and particularly, yeah, bringing in the visual and the olfactory because, you know, any of our listeners who are, I know we've got a lot of listeners in Australia and a couple, right. um, several in Europe and, you know, really across the world where, you know, they don't have the benefit of a rattle. Um, well, and, and I don't know if you're aware of this, Kayla, but uh, even in the U.S., we are finding ourselves um, in situations where rattlesnakes are evolving to, to be born uh, patched without rattles uh there's yeah. a, a large number of them now that 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 don't have rattles at all and so even when you're talking about a rattlesnake you you have that the issue of not actually having an audible sound that you can be listening for so absolutely if you're yeah. gonna really pursue snake avoidance training you have to do something besides just an audible cue yeah the one rattlesnake um well, one of the two rattlesnakes I've run into with my dog, Barley, did not rattle at him. Right. Um, and he was within a meter or so of it. You know, he was close enough that it was pretty alarming. Um, right. Maybe two meters, but still too close. Um, and it's uh, kind of a, a miracle I was able to see it. Um, we were in kind of a prairie dog town desert yeah. area. So I was actually able to see it versus most of my snake experiences. I haven't been able to see it until we're very alarmingly right. close. Yes, so. yes. That's my experience as well. Yeah. So do you have anything that you would like to kind of add or um, kind of put on the table as far as traditional snake avoidance with um, shock or e-collars and some of the the reasons beyond, I mean, I think the, the unknown of the fallout should be enough for most people yes. to have significant pause, but anything else that we don't, um, we were hoping to improve upon with, with um, these new methodologies? Yeah, I, I think that's the, pro the, the predominant aspect of it, but I do think it's important to realize that I understand why uh, mm -hmm. a dog guardian who cares and loves their dog greatly might still opt to go with an aversive technique the, the the philosophy that you often hear is, I'd rather shock my dog a couple of times than have him killed by a rattlesnake. To me, mm -hmm. it's worth the effort. Um, but while that that um, thought process 
makes sense. Even if I didn't have an ethical issue with using a shot collar, um, my bigger concern, and at the time when I was working with my uncle in New Mexico, my bigger concern was the fallout that he had from having used the shot collar technique. And I understand that most proponents of the shot collar would say, well, that was probably a poorly used shot collar or someone who didn't understand mm -hmm. how to use it. But what was alarming to me was seeing the number of trainers that I have found, that I have met, that I have talked to that have had fallout from their dogs that that were exposed to the shot collar technique uh, dogs that shut down dogs that became super fearful dogs that didn't want to go outside and do their work anymore that used to love doing their 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 herding task or whatever no longer mm -hmm. wanting to do it and being fearful of it um it's 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 just was it was too uh upsetting and concerning to me to see these hardened ranchers telling me their their sob stories about how their dogs had shut down and how their dogs had become fearful and now their dogs just ended up becoming indoor house dogs because their fear of of you know what the dog attached the the shock to in it was different with different dogs in some cases right. the dog was just afraid of the task of hurting in other cases the dog became fearful of 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 mesquite bushes which is what they were all <laughs> coming in that's they were everywhere and the dog didn't want to come yeah. into contact with them anywhere in another case the dog was just afraid to go outdoors and and uh, it, it it was such a common thread that i had to say you know if you're looking for the most effective way to teach this i'm not so sure that you could put shock collar treatment on the list at yeah. the very worst the technique that i would try to approach where you're using some other behavior whether it's a down behavior recall behavior or some other behavior that's in the repertoire that the dog already um at worst it fails and you still end up getting a dog bitten but at best if you're able to actually teach the dog an alternative way to respond to coming into contact with the rattlesnake and then then i think that's an appropriate thing to do and one of the things that really prom prompted me to go into this further was a i got calls from people who were saying we would really like to establish a protocol i had a, a group of people from the florida and georgia area that were looking for help with uh with cottonmouth uh mm -hmm. um and um um and they were they were looking for a, a scent protocol and of course i had done a lot of work in um in law enforcement with scent detection but most of the thing that i spend most of my time in law enforcement doing and most of the thing that i have found to be the most important aspect of snake avoidance training it's not the recall anybody can train a good reliable recall what was important was the preparation and generalization for working in the real world and how you get a dog not to want to chase a rattlesnake or go after a rattlesnake or bark at a rattlesnake or want to engage with the rattlesnake i realized that the same approach that i use 
in law enforcement and in guide dog work where they're the number one thing that trainers who were trying to move to positive reinforcement, but they felt they couldn't, was for what they often in those areas referred to as impulse control. That when a dog sees a bunny, when a dog sees a squirrel shooting across the trail, a deer running through the forest, they are so prey-driven dog. They're such prey-driven dogs that that internal desire to chase something like a bunny, a squirrel, or a rabbit is so strong, their thought process was, there's no way you're going to use positive reinforcement to overcome that because that Mm -hmm. is their most powerful reinforcer. So anything you're carrying on your person, whether it's a toy or a treat, is not going to be as valuable as chasing that bunny. So that was the dilemma that I was first presented with almost two decades ago when I started working with law enforcement, when I started working with guide dog organizations who said, we are committed to positive reinforcement, but this is the one place that we can't solve it. We have to use a punisher. And it's very much, was very similar to the snake avoidance issue when it was like, I don't want to use punishers, but if it's the way I'm going to keep my dog safe, then I'm going to use one. And that's the way the guide dog trainer felt. If if that's what I need to do to keep the dog from pulling their handler into the middle of the street to go chase something, I have to do it. And so yeah. we really worked hard and over the years developed a really good protocol for generalization training that has been the key to successfully training snake avoidance because um, inevitably where everybody takes a shortcut is they go, yeah, my dog's pretty well generalized, but they don't spend the time to really do it well so that the dog has learned to expect the unexpected, has learned that all good things come from their trainer, has learned that that if they're going to get to chase the bunny, the squirrel, the rabbit, the deer, whatever, my trainer's going to tell me when it's okay to do that. I have to focus on my task at hand and stay on task. And we have been very, very successful at doing that in the working dog world. And so as I started putting together more recent um, snake avoidance courses, I've merged those two together. The idea of the snake being a cue to recall and how to make sure that 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 recall is reliable, that the dog Mm -hmm. moves away from the snake and comes to you because that's where the reinforcement is heaviest. And that's been very successful for us. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think, you know, to echo everything you're saying, I think, you know, obviously I have not yet pulled the trigger on doing a snake avoidance um, uh, training endeavor yet. And part of that is because, you know, I think one of the things we haven't talked about yet is doing this with our working dogs. I mean, if I think about the hours, years of work that I have put into my dogs and the idea of undoing that by making them scared to work in, um, you know, a a snake aversion class gone wrong, um, would be devastating. Um, Absolutely. And it's important. It's important to realize, though, that this kind of snake avoidance isn't really making them fearful of snakes. It's actually, right. uh, it's just a cue that 
that snake right. no, is I'm a huge No, I'm talking about run. the traditional, oh, the, right, the, right, the, right. The, the shock collar. You know, that's why yes. I haven't done it. But it has always been, you know, when I talk to people about shock collars and working dogs, you know, that is always one of those lines that I feel fuzziest on with the snake avoidance in particular. It's just like, sure. I'm not convinced yet. I wouldn't do it with my dogs, but it's not, it's one of those areas where I am so much less convinced about not doing it as well. Um, right. You know, again, I'm not doing, I haven't done it. So what, um, you know, we, we've touched a little bit on what this process looks like. Um, maybe we've got a bunch of questions from guests um, or from our patrons. So why don't we kind of start out with what the process actually looks like to some degree, you know, obviously knowing we'll, sure. we'll we're not going to cover everything here. Nobody's going to walk away from this knowing how to do this exactly. But right, the the process is actually amazingly straightforward. Um, the appearance of a rattlesnake, whether it's the odor or the visual appearance or the sound of the rattle, if it's a rattlesnake, that odor of the snake becomes the cue for the animal to recall at top speed, change directions, and run away from the snake to whatever predetermined place that you have taught them. In addition, we've usually trained some kind of an alert behavior just mm -hmm. so, generally speaking, when my dog comes running back at me at top speed, I already know that he must have encountered a snake because he won't come back at top speed unless I sound a recall and since I didn't sound one. Right. But nonetheless, to avoid confusion and due to a lot of my experiences in scent detection work, in law enforcement where the um the alert behavior was really important we went ahead and trained it and for me mm -hmm. what i suggest you use as an alert behavior be something that is very easy for the dog to do that he would never normally do in a forest or desert or hiking yeah. situation so what i taught my dog to do is to target push kind of hard on my knee now, that's not the best thing for everybody to do if people have bad mm -hmm. knees, et cetera, but it's a choice you make. The dog comes running back, he pushes on my knee, I reinforce him heavily like I would for any recall, I leash him up and we walk away and go get away from the situation. Um, that's the protocol. And what's amazing about it is if someone comes into a training seminar that I'm doing and they already have a really good alert behavior and a good recall behavior, the teaching of it is relatively simple. You can yeah. you can come into a weekend seminar and come out of it having your dog responding well to odor. The bigger challenge for most people is the generalization to real world scenarios and all of the various distractions that can pull a dog off his task. And it just so happens that a rattlesnake coiled up ready to strike or slithering away is the kind of distraction that can be very appealing to some dogs to want to go after. And so that is actually the stumbling block that most people have is understanding how to use positive reinforcement to train animals to stay on task and not be afraid. And yeah. that's a bigger part of the protocol than the actual training of the recall and alert, but sure. that's what everybody sees when you watch videos. That I should just share with you videos of the recall that we use. It's 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 quite amazing. The 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 dog gets the odor and then 
turns on a dime and runs at top speed uh, back to wherever he was trained to run back to. Uh, and that's what people take away is it's the recall behavior just put on a new cue. But it's the desensitization to the real world environment that is the stumbling block that we have to work hardest on. That makes perfect sense. Um, so in that early stage, then, would it be you've got some sort of snake or snake uh, odor or something, and as soon as you see a change of behavior from the dog, are you just giving a recall cue and then hoping yes. for a cue transfer? What I do is I started off uh, the same way I learned in law enforcement, where you have very focused odor. And so we use uh, shedded snake skins, and we get the shedded skins uh, from the species of, of snake that we're trying to train. And we concentrate that, that odor into a jar, a, a can, some, some, some device. And then at the early stages, when we first start training it is we have, uh, first we just let the dog sniff of the, of the odor, use the recall mm -hmm. and get, make that really, really strong. Once we see that that odor is strong, we then will put, 10 identical jars out for the dog and the dog will go sniffing around. And when he gets to the one with the snake odor, either he will all because he's already learned that he's supposed to recall off. It will recall off of it. Or if he hasn't yet learned it, we will, as we see his nose flare, as he's get, taking in that particular odor of that particular can, we sound the recall cue and make that connection really, really strong so that by the time we actually start moving into the field, the dog already knows this odor means recall. It isn't mm -hmm. connected to a snake necessarily. It's just the odor of the snake. Uh, but it, it, this, at that point, he hasn't seen uh, or, or, or necessarily heard the snake. He's just learning that that odor is the thing that he's responding to, and he's going to respond quickly and run back very, very fast. But it's the typical way that odor is often introduced mm -hmm. even in nose work cases sometimes depending yeah. on who you're working with it's done in a very similar way make that no, that that's an odor i should respond to yeah yeah that sounds very similar to how we introduce our odors um right. so and i think but that it's never connected to... but it isn't ever connected with play with this odor or or mm -hmm. there, it's never it's never designed in a way that causes the dogs to want to alert they're not the, the, except for one case where I did work on alert, they're not really alerting on the odor. They are learning to flee from the odor, but it's a joyful flea. They're yeah. not afraid of it. They're just like best reinforcers ever come on this recall. And, and so they, but it takes them away from the snake often before they even see it. And what we have tended to see as dogs gain experience with odor they are able to pick up that odor earlier and earlier so that they start alerting on the odor before we've often had to go back and you know when we've seen it we've reinforced it and then we've got okay let's go see if if he was if really, if, he really did, yeah. if it really was a snake and, and we found that you know when you've trained it well it always it, it always is there's always a snake yeah. there 
Yeah. So you're actually basically trying to get them to perform a fringe alert, which is something, right. you know, like what you would want from an explosives dog. They're not necessarily right. sourcing right. all the way into that odor. <laughs> right. Right. So the worst thing, you, yeah, the worst thing you ever, you, you, you know, so many, uh, you know, I've worked with avalanche dogs in Colorado where when they find the odor of the person they're searching for, they start pawing at the snow. Well, with yeah. an, an explosive detection dog, you don't want them pawing at the package or the suitcase or the thing. Nope. It's really, they stay far away and alert. And in this case, it's just a recall behavior. They completely leave the area altogether. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think kind of putting it in those terms helped me click into something. So now we've got a bunch of questions from some of our listeners. Um, so Raman asked, and there's a bunch of different question marks in this, um, but I think they're all circling around the same concept. So I'm going to read them all together. Um, where do you get the snake scent or body to teach the dogs to avoid? And then she says, I know this would be different with different snakes, but how do you go about getting started? Is the ideal situation of having a live but contained snake to practice with, or is it equally as effective to do it with just the scent of the snake or a dead snake? So how do we, Excellent. how do we actually get Excellent. this over? Excellent question. First of all, I always worried about the fact that, that do I need to be able to maintain snakes so that I have snakes to train on. And many people do use living snakes. They have them kept in a terrarium of some kind and they take them to snake avoidance class. I have never, ever used a living snake. What I have often used is the many, many contacts that, uh, that I can have through either herpetological societies, uh, herpetological clubs, zoological organizations, and what's great is you don't need a dead snake. Snakes have this wonderful, uh, 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 the, you know, this <laughs> thing that they do where they shed their skin on a pretty regular basis, depending on how much they're eating. And those snake skins are really, really valuable in teaching odor. Uh, the most important thing when you're sourcing snake skins is if you go on, Etsy, for example, a lot of people have snake skins for sale, but those snake skins are designed for uh, arts and crafts, uh, for, mm -hmm. for making belts and decorating things. And most of those snake skins have been preserved with some kind of chemical preservant uh, that, that retards fire and all sorts of other things, but that don't help you with snake avoidance training. You want to be able to get hold of people who have access to snake skin sheds that either can send them to you before they have been preserved or that will that have got taken them straight out of the uh um straight out of a an enclosure, enclosure. where they uh -huh. paint them or in some cases um i know that in my uh uh, while although my first case of this was using uh, was just using rattle sounds, we constantly would find shedded snake skins in various areas uh, around the uh, around the ranch, and so it's it's using that now. There was a period of time early on in the training where not only did I acquire snake skins, but I also acquired a variety of urates, uh, which are fecal and 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 urine. It 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 combines into this kind of globular stuff, and I got that as well. But it turned out that odor was so potent that it it was it was much more potent than what you would discover in the in the wild and i found that i had to dilute it down and then over the years as we've perfected the protocol we've learned that 
that the snake's shedded skin is all that is really necessary to train it. So the 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 biggest thing that I have with a lot of my students, since I have students from all over the world, is I encourage them to reach out to herpetological societies and 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 reptile um, hobbyists abound in this in this all yeah. over the world. They're just everywhere. You just need to find a way into one of those facebook groups or chat groups or whatever and let them know what you're doing most of them will love the fact that you're actually interested in preserving the snake you're not looking to kill snakes you're looking to teach dogs to avoid them so that nobody wants to kill them and so they're usually very supportive of that effort and so it's it's really uh surprisingly easy uh, to get samples when you start making connections with some of those types of of herpetological societies, herpetological museums, uh, zoos, etc., you'll find places that are able to help you out with venomous s- snake skins. Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me. I would be pretty thrilled to get to share something like that if I if I had snakes as a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So next up, Meg asks, and I think we've been touching on this, but how do we avoid positive snake associations through this training? Again, I know that that was one of my biggest um, concerns. Is yeah. yeah, and it's a it's it's an understandable concern. I've never run into that problem, but it's I've not run into it because I've taken this double dip to parallel approach on the one hand the odor of the snake is the cue to come running back and so it's just an odor that teaches the dog i get really well reinforced and i don't get reinforced for rooting it out or or -hmm. investigating it further as soon as i detect it i run away from it at top speed and i get reinforced and so it's the recall behavior that has the high value connection to it or the odor of the snake in parallel to that we do this generalization training and this generalization training it it looks silly at first but you actually have somebody that the dog knows it's often best if it's a family member a friend somebody your dog sees all the time that is providing distractions to the dog uh, whether it be because they're wearing a costume, they're riding bikes, they're they're carrying tambourines and other musical instruments, they have power tools, they're doing all sorts of things designed to distract the dog. But my approach to this is always, 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 and I emphasize and underline always, use distractions that you have total control over. Before going out into the forest where you cannot control the rabbit or the squirrel or the deer, you're working with uh, an assistant who will stop doing the distraction, will get out of costume, will do whatever is necessary to make the dog comfortable till eventually the dog learns I don't need to pay attention to anything going on around me. And thus, by the time they actually come in contact with snakes or anything else, they've learned to ignore all of that stuff and pay attention to their trainer and react to their trainer. So it's those two things going in parallel that keep the snake from ever being something that is like a woohoo, it's a snake, I can't wait to play with it. That's not the approach. You're not creating fear of the Mm -hmm. snake, but you're also not creating a love for the snake either. You are 
you are you're pairing it with a, a different behavior that already has a strong reinforcement history. Yeah, I think that I think that makes sense. And um, I see how it would work, at least. So that's probably the most important thing. Um, so now Jerianna asks, and this is this is an interesting one. So this one might be the closest to left field that we get. Um, so Jerianna, uh, for a little bit of background, is planning on training dogs to help clear um, plots for tortoises prior to construction. Um, she's they've got an endangered species of tortoise that they're hoping to to help work with. Um, and what she is most concerned about is that the snakes sometimes share the tortoise burrows that the dog is inspecting and is wondering if there's any kind of special considerations or concerns when the target odor may kind of co-vary with this snake. Right. There's a couple thoughts that I have to that. I'll give you my short answer. And it is one of those situations where I would suggest that if this is something that is she's seriously interested in, is I would encourage her to work with a a positive reinforcement snake avoidance trainer who can troubleshoot the challenges of that with them. And I've got many examples that I can share with you that 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 uh, have come up in in my own career. Um, first of all, you you definitely want your dog to learn the, to identify the species of snake that you are concerned about and whether that be commingled with turtle odor or not commingled with total mm -hmm. turtle odor you need the dog to recognize it's it doesn't matter what it's commingled with if this is the scent that i'm smelling then this is their snakes are here now the challenge is and this is where i doubt we have the time to troubleshoot mm -hmm. the answer to this question right now is if the dog has been trained to alert and potentially stick his nose into a burrow where turtles are located, but you have a fear of the dog sticking his nose and then getting bitten by a rattlesnake, um, my question for her would be, what would you like the dog to do? In other words, in a normal mm -hmm. situation, your dog is searching for turtles and sticks his nose into this burrow saying, there are turtles here. And you find the turtles, you do whatever you need to do about marking and whatever. But what do you want the dog to do if he smells a turtle, but also smells rattlesnake odor? Do you want the dog to do something else? I would suggest my, with my very little understanding exactly of what she's trying to do, I would suggest you train an alert behavior that says, I don't stick my nose into this burrow, but I do this other thing instead that lets the handler know, okay, there's a turtle here, but there's also a snake here, and we need to be careful and approach it with caution. Yeah. Um, and examples of the kind of variations to the protocol that I've had to come up with, I'll give you two examples. And this sounds mm -hmm. like one of those that would, would fall into one of these categories. I was working on a project in Nevada where many, many uh, dog owners were concerned that they live on wide open property and their dogs have access to that property and that they might come into contact with rattlesnakes when they aren't with them. In other words, mm. there is not a person to recall to because the dog is just wandering the property yeah. on its own, comes across a rattlesnake. What does it do? I'm not there to reinforce it. Do I? So how do we, A, re get the dog 
back away from the snake? How do we reinforce the dog even though we're not present? And how do we keep the dog from going back out and re-engaging with the snake after yeah. it's been reinforced? Mm -hmm. So that's where the in 2018 and 2019, I worked with this group of Southwestern Nevada Dog Association to come up with a protocol that included the dogs recalling to a predetermined kennel. They would go into the kennel, press, push a target that triggered uh, treats to be delivered, but also closed and locked the gate to the kennel so that the dogs got reinforced but didn't have access to go back out again. But we had to figure out how to design a self-locking kennel with a way to deliver treats, even though we weren't there. But it was very successful, and they were very happy with that. Mm -hmm. I am currently working with uh, a group of livestock guarding dogs, where Ooh. the livestock guarding dog uh, might come into contact with the rattlesnake. The dog's job is to protect the herd. They don't want the dog to come running back to the house. They need the dog to stay in the pasture to guard the livestock. And so we're thinking a little bit about how we might train the presence of a snake to teach the livestock guarding dog to herd the livestock away from the presence of that snake and then sound an alarm or something along those lines. But it's that kind of thought process that you have to put into these unique situations. In other yeah. words, the protocol was designed originally for dogs that are working with ranchers that are herding sh herding cattle or herding sheep or uh, the average dog owner who's going for a hike in the forest, a hike in the desert, a hike somewhere with their dog so that the dog comes back to them. These other two situations were ones in which the person is not with the dog uh, and they needed them to react in a different way. And it sounds to me like this particular project, you need yet another example. There might be a handler present, but you need a way for the handler to know that the reason the dog's not doing whatever he's supposed to do in other situations is because there is a rattlesnake odor commingled with it. And the way I would work with this situation is sit down with the group of trainers who are involved in training this particular animal and saying, what is it you'd like the dog to do instead? What, yeah. what is the right reaction that you'd like to see from the dog? What would help you continue with your project, but protect the dog from getting bitten? And it would probably mean a different reaction, a different behavior that the dog does if he detects snake odor. And that's my easiest way to answer yeah. it without actually coming up with an answer because it requires asking a lot more questions of that person to really understand what they need from the dog to come up with the right solution. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's a good place to start. And yeah, you know, depending on the conservation status of the snakes in the area, it might be fine if the dog just kind of treats both of treats that snake as a Okay. Right. We now we know there's a snake there, which still means we need to do something different with the the construction right. area. You know, there might be something even a little bit simpler, but I, I don't quite know enough about Jariana's projects to say right. for sure either. Right. Okay, and, that's, so, and it's because I understand that those kinds of projects have a lot of different goals. That yeah. the correct answer needs to get more information from them to develop the right protocol. Yeah, definitely. It might be some sort of three-pronged thing, or it might be more, it might be fewer. I'm not yeah, quite sure. Yeah. So, 
yeah, we'll see what she says. Uh, I mean, she's she's doing weekly calls with me, so we'll we'll get more information at some point. <laughs> so now Chris asks um, if we have any information on when most dogs get snake bitten. Are they at more risk when they're kenneled and bored um, than while they're working? Um, yeah, yeah. Do we know at kind of when dogs are at the highest risk? And I'm sure yeah. that varies a little bit from job to job. And I don't know it the varies, answer for conservation it, dogs. Yeah, it varies greatly depending upon the situation. Uh, I have not seen situations where dogs get snake bitten because they're being kenneled. Uh, other than that, it may be in a situation where their kennels are located in some kind of a. Uh, place that's very populated by rattlesnakes or some kind of snake um most of the time uh the the dogs get bitten when they're out in the field and and just stumble across them and just step near them on them you know they're not really paying attention they don't even they're often not even aware that there's a dog uh that, that there's a snake there uh what's interesting when you look at natural dog behavior there's something about the coiled hissing and something about a snake that does not cause most dogs to jump right in and grab them they'll bark at them they'll growl at them they see them as a threat they don't see them as something they want to chase you don't see them but i think with that when a snake quits coiling and starts slithering away you will see dogs then no longer consider them a threat and chase after them um but more often than not the 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 instances that i have seen of dogs that have been bitten by snakes happens when they are out in the field doing something and they didn't even i think you mentioned it yourself your own experiences are that they are just they just happen to walk by step through run through and don't even notice the snake is there and that's one of the reasons why we work so hard to teach them to be very aware of odor of snakes and to avoid that that odor of snakes, not because of fear, but because it gets them reinforced in some other way. Um, so that's um, you don't you don't find sleeping dogs get bitten by snakes very often. Um, you don't find that that it's usually when they're out in the field doing something. That makes sense. Yeah. And I know like the outdoor kenneled working dogs that I know of in Africa, for for instance, usually those kennels are snake proofed in a way yes, as well when yes. you are in these situations where, yeah, yeah puff adders, spitting cobras, mambas, those yes. sorts of things might be coming through camp. They, they usually are the, constructing yes. things to avoid yes. that. You named the three snakes. My most recent project is <laughs> I'm involved in a project in Zambia. I have the elephant conservation project that I've been involved with, but while I've been there, I've been asked to help with a, a, a conservation project that is designed to protect these various species of snakes, but to protect uh, villagers from being uh, being bitten by these snakes. And the three species that we're working with are black mambas, puff adders, and spitting cobras. I was, <laughs> you, you just mentioned all three of them right there in one breath. So, yeah, well, those are the ones that I'm familiar with from Kenya. So, yes, yeah. so similar, uh, yeah, similar problem in Zambia. They're scary. They're scary guys. They are. They're um, very, very venomous. Very, very scary. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. What, what the what the Zambian government is trying to do is to not get people to kill them, uh, but to avoid right. them. And so in 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 those in these situations, we're trying to get them to alert and move their 
their people away from the snake and uh, and becoming much more they're becoming very good at it we have a a a lot of dogs that are being trained on this right now because i'm going to africa every year and i'm going out for my sixth year now so we're we're it's just one of those things that's been added to my project list while i'm there because (laughs) i've got the time and it's just been a fascinating uh uh project and so far we've been really successful at getting them to respond to all three species yeah, that's really encouraging. The one puff adder I ran into while we were in Kenya, they they did, you know, they went and alerted the villagers. And my understanding was that that snake was going to be dispatched. Um, you know, it's and people are so rightfully fearful of them that the snakes yeah. are pretty intensely persecuted. Yeah. And I, I get it. I mean, I would cool. too if I had kids that were at risk or had lost a, a nephew or something. I I get it, but it's you know not ideal from a conservation standpoint either. No, no, but yes, but my own reaction to seeing a rattlesnake up close is like, get it out of here. You know, it's just my, my <laughs> visceral know. reaction because I've been was was, was so severely injured by one. Yeah, yeah. I my most recent, um, I, my only fur to lance that we ran into in the tropics was actually a night that we had just drank a bottle of wine and our we're waking our way back to the car from a uh, from a fire, uh, a bonfire, and um, all, we were all barefoot. <laughs> we were all you know had a bottle of wine on us and almost tripped over the little guy. And um, yeah. you know, there's nothing that sobers you up quite like having to yell down <laughs> at all of the yeah. dogs. And you know, we got the cat in our arms, and it was yeah. totally fine. And <laughs> Thank and, goodness and you, we had a spotlight with us. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, the 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 biggest myth that people can have is they go, oh, it's just a little snake. It's not mm-hmm. going to be problematic. And it's just not true. Little snakes can be, can inject a lot of that. Yeah. It's, well, and it's not like you need a, a shot glass of it. <laughs> you no, know, this stuff no. is pretty potent. It's not like you need a lot. Very, very. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, I uh, we were talking about this before we hit record, but for anyone who's listening, I am going to be trying to get veterinarians from a variety of continents to come on and talk about kind of more specific treatment and care of these different groups of snakes. You know, this avoidance stuff should apply for all species, but um, for actual treatment and kind of more snake behavior stuff, I am working on trying to get people from every continent. So hang tight, everyone at home. So the last question, well, last question from our guests, and then I wrote down two bonus questions for myself as we talked. Um, can I just can I just yeah, make course, one go. comment about what you were just saying? Yeah. I would also encourage people who were working in areas of snakes to have a to consult with with physicians to understand what you should do should you get get bitten. I know that because my grandfather was not really well versed at how to handle it, some of the things that he did to my wound and to treating me to get me to the hospital were not the right solutions and probably made the problem worse. And so I would certainly mm, encourage people, yeah. absolutely, we're caring about our dogs, but you can't take care of your dog if you're not take caring, taking care of yourself. And you should really understand treatment and protocol for what you should do if you get bitten. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. there's only one of us that can drive us to the to the vet or the ER, and that is not the dog. Right. right. So, yeah. So then Emma asked, um, when doing snake avoidance training, do dogs tend to generalize to avoid all snakes, or do you need to intentionally train snake avoidance with a variety of species to get that generalization? Yeah. We. What I have found is, 
if you're if you're working on odor of snake, the all snakes don't have the same odor. And uh, if you if you're working on one particular species of rattlesnake, that's what the dog will alert to, and it won't it won't won't alert it to anything else unless mm-hmm. you do the generalization process. And in Africa, where I'm working right now, we have the dogs being alerting on three different species of snakes. And there will come a point where if you uh, teach dogs to alert to enough different species that they will begin to generalize and suddenly it's any kind of snake will yeah. will, will cause that but usually uh, most people are are satisfied with the dog that just alerts to the one two or three species that they may have in their particular region yeah that makes sense and i'm i'm already thinking that this has got me feeling a lot more confident about giving this a try um and yeah, we'll probably start with rattlesnakes, but because we do do quite a bit of work in Central America, we'll try to throw some fertilances and bushmasters in there. And oh, I yeah. assume that especially the more variety we give them, the better they will get at yep. making that generalization. And then if we do end up you know, going to Africa with either of my dogs, which isn't likely at any point, but then we're, we've got a head start at least on right. mambas and cobras. Yeah. And we often will do a lot of, if we're interested in generalization training, we will often expose them to a lot of visual, uh, fake visual snakes that look very different in color and size and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And you can actually, although odor is what we mainly focus on now, we also will train a lot of visual and and, uh, uh, types of, you know, so that they, I, I want my dogs to be really responsive to something slithering away and and not wanting to chase that and so i'm very cautious about making sure they're exposed to that no that makes perfect sense and i know one of the things that i personally need to do a much better job of is when my dog barley finds snake sheds in the field um i am often with biologists and we all get excited and want to check it out (laughs) um which would be a very good way to teach him to locate those for us so that's something that i i noticed in guatemala he found um two snake sheds and that was too too many for me um that's a scary uh, thing yeah you're absolutely right yeah yeah so i think that's something that particularly when you're out with biologists um good to good to be cognizant of and you know i started as soon as he did that i again told him to leave it sent him away put him in a down and then told the biologists okay now we can all go look at the really cool boa shed because it is very neat and i do also want to go look at it (laughs) um no that's that's great that's a great way you know having a strong leave it having a strong with something that can get the dog to safety before you investigated is is wise yeah yeah because again and, and you know it's one thing with a boa i would rather my dog not run into a boa but if it had been a fertilance or a bushmaster um you know that could be very very bad very very quickly and even yes. even boas um not necessarily yep. something i need my dog running into um no. So is there anything that we can do about that lack of perception? You know, you talked a little bit about kind of specifically taking them out and distracting them uh, and then continuing to expose them. You know, I think that's just, that's my biggest, uh, not hesitation about getting started, but the biggest thing that I'm worried about doing well. Right. It is, it is a difficult process. And I, I, What's interesting, I never thought of it as a difficult process. I teach it, and to me, it's a very straightforward and simple process. I understand how to apply it. But when I work with professionals, 
I'm surprised at how often they're eager to take shortcuts. They think I don't really need to do all of this stuff. And I, and I, mm. I, I keep insisting that they do. You really want the dog to be so desensitized to so many different types of distractions that they really learn to not pay attention to them and really stay focused and not wanting to chase after things and things like that. And so it is the hardest part of the procedure. In fact, when I teach about snake avoidance um, and when I teach law enforcement and guide dogs about about how to uh, not get let your dogs get distracted, I say, I'm going to say this to you and it's going to logically make sense, but I'm going to tell you that it's the one thing that you're going to want to take a shortcut on. You're going to think, I don't need to do this with my dog. He'll be fine. And you'll find that it isn't true. You need uh-huh. to do all of the steps. You need to go through the steps of really teaching that animal to expect the unexpected, to learn to pay attention to you, to not be interested in chasing after stuff. And and often I've got people who go, well, it'll never work with my dog because he loves squirrels so much, or he'll never work with my dog because he loves chasing deer. And I'll say, no, that is when it, that's who it works with it. You, but you need to go through these steps. And I, and I always tell them, you're going to get tired of me telling you this, but mm-hmm. it is using distractions that you can control and really putting them into your dog's life all the time, three, four times a day. It, it doesn't have to be lengthy sessions. It can be a five-minute trip to Home Depot, but you've got someone there who's helping you to surprise the dog with something. You're, 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 every time you take a walk, you have someone going with you to help you provide distractions. And, and it's really recognizing the seriousness of if you want your dog to truly be bomb proof you want your dog to truly be responsive and under all conditions you have to go through this training procedure and it you know i my, my most recent snake avoidance class i'm teaching one online right now where where this week is our last week of the course but in my last course my last uh, class i i must have said this people would ask a question and i it was the 10th time that day in that class that i had said the same thing and i said i gotta take a moment to ask you guys a question i have to believe that when i have to repeat something i've said 10 times it has to be my fault there must be something i'm not saying that i'm not emphasizing enough to make this stand out to you as being important and one of the students said to me you know what it is ken is you have the big picture and we don't. And so when you don't have the big picture, you're so focused on, yeah, but squirrels are my problem or this is my Mm. problem. And you're not realizing that this protocol that I'm talking about of introducing distractions that you can control is essential to getting your dog to the point where the biggest distraction in the world can go by and the dog goes, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm focused right now. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. get to that later. And you really need to, emph- I have to emphasize that's such an important part of the training. And it's no matter how experienced people are, they overlook it or they go, ah, that doesn't apply to me. It does. It does yeah. apply to you. 
I can imagine that. And well, I can see myself asking that question because I don't want to believe it because I yeah. find that I'm <laughs> I like taking shortcuts. I'm a lazy trainer. Um, we all take shortcuts. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's just it is, is if you want that reliability, you got to, you can't take those shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah. Usually if I'm asking clarifying questions repeatedly, it's because I don't like the answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, no, I understand what you're saying, Ken, but I don't like that. (laughs) I want you to say something else. Give me the magic bullet that'll solve this. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's, that is always, you know, that is always one of the things that is so appealing about advertisements for shot collar stuff is, oh my gosh, you're telling me that there's a button I can press. Of of course people want to do that. So, okay. The last question I have is, um, just maintenance training question mark. Um, so what are you finding as far as with this, um, with this protocol, how much maintenance training are we revisiting it every year, every quarter for, you know, what what does that look like? You know, it's a good question and it kind of depends upon how often your dog comes into contact with snakes. Um, Mm -hmm. I find that in my work in New Mexico and Nevada, we come into contact with snakes so often that the dog is constantly being reminded that this is an important behavior and it's constantly being reinforced. And so there is almost zero need for maintenance training because of the fact that it's, um, that it's being tested all the time. However, one of the things that we find in law enforcement is when our dogs are reliable, there's this desire to quit training and because we thought, oh, he knows what he's doing. But the the thing about real world snake avoidance is you could find yourself in a situation where your dog is racing back to you and alerting to the fact that he found a rattlesnake. And it turns out that he's just learned because he did it once and got reinforced for it that anytime he feels he wants a reinforcer, he'll just come running back to you. Um, and so the way you avoid that is by doing refresher sessions and, and you know, sessions where you know where, where the odor is and your dog learns that they can't pull the wool over your eyes and pretend. Um, and this, you need to make sure you never let them do that. And so for that reason, um, I... I think, and, and, and it's a question of how often you really need to do this. With law enforcement, yeah. we do refreshers weekly for for life because we want these dogs to be very good at alerting on the drugs or the explosives. In most snake avoidance situations, um, I will suggest testing and making sure your dog is accurate every six months to a year. But it just mm-hmm. depends on how often. I mean, if you are always coming into contact with snakes and you know that those that they real that the alerts are real you, you don't have to test that often but it's always good to get a few searches i mean some situations where your dog where there is no odor to be found and making sure that your dog isn't false alerting and that's the best way to keep your confidence level up that your dog really knows what they're looking for is by going through that refresher and again i you know, in, 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 in professional working environments, it's weekly, but in more practical working environments, it, you don't have to set them up that often. I think six months to a year is probably enough. Yeah. I could see this being the sort of thing that you spend several months focusing on to get the initial training. And then, yeah, we would probably do a couple weeks of brush up work before we go back to the tropics or something right. like that. You know, Absolutely. I'm moving to Oregon where we're going to have a lot fewer snakes, especially Western Oregon. And 
Um, so I won't no. necessarily have to be as worried about it as I was when I was living in Colorado. But also I lived in Colorado for six years and I saw four rattlesnakes on the same day on the same hike. Um, it's it is, just, yes. It's, 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 it's that kind of hit or miss stuff that makes yeah. it difficult. Although it makes you wonder how many times you walk past them and you never notice. Um, right. So anyway, well, Ken, is there a good place that people can keep an eye out for your course um, and for other news from you and Karen Pryor Academy? Yeah, I, I, there's two ways. One is, is, is if you follow me on Instagram, which is uh, Ken underscore Ramirez underscore KPCT for Karen Pryor Clicker Training, or looking at our website, we announce our, I'm just finishing up this year's snake avoidance class, so I'm not offering it again this year, but I'll be offering it again next year. And if you just keep on the lookout for it, uh, it's a class, surprisingly, it sells out every time. It's, it's, it's a, it's, there's a, a real demand for it. Um, and uh, there are two ways of taking the course with us. We have the, what I call the Excel students, the students that actually are working their dogs in the class and we're getting to watch them all the time and everybody learns from them. And then we have what is more like an audit student who just sits and lurks and listens in and watches mm -hmm. it all happen. And you take in the information that way, that, that is, uh, we have a much larger number of those kinds of students that take the course as well. But the, as I said, the course is sold out every year. We've, 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 we have 90 students, uh, each wow. time we offer it. And I'm always surprised. I think it's not going to sell out this year. Everybody who needed it has taken it already, but it's, it's not true. People still very interested in it. So. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. It is something that, uh, I mean, fear is a strong motivator for people as it well. Is. You know, it, it it's, sure uh, is. It's an important thing, and there are so many people who live in snake territory and so many people who are not willing to kind of take the risk with the shot collars. Right, right. So, yeah. Well, Ken, thank you so much. I know my I learned pleasure. a lot, and I'm I'm very excited to get out there and kind of try some of this stuff with with my own dogs. Um, good, good. And, uh, Don't be afraid of it. It's it's. It, I really, I promise. It's I. I it's not going to make your dog love snakes and go rushing yeah. towards them. It's just, just the opposite, but it's, uh, uh, it's been a protocol that's been really successful for us. So. Yeah. That's really exciting to hear. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that was my biggest concern with the positive stuff is okay. Yeah. I just, I really want to make sure that Barley doesn't become a snake magnet. Right. Um, right. He's, uh, his level of self-preservation is already low. He's, uh, kind of gotten a little famous on within my friend group for trying to kill himself about once a year. And this year it was, <laughs> this year it was tick-borne stuff. He's had a brown recluse bite. He, oh. uh, you know, he's swallowed sticks and it, we're just, you know, he hasn't done a snake yet, but <laughs> it would be very on brand for him. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, for everyone at home, I hope this inspired you to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Maybe check out this course and uh, try to get on it for 2024. Um, or if you're listening even further in the future, maybe for next year, you can find show notes, join our Patreon, join our conservation detection dog course, and all sorts of other great things over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. 